You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology coming up in the next hours. Some of the world's most recognizable brands from Apple to Coca-Cola are being warned to pull advertising from Twitter depending on how Elon Musk moderates content or not. But it's not just Twitter that has an ad problem. All major social networks are reeling from fewer ad dollars. Will they even go to social media in the future or flee to streaming? We'll discuss. Plus, Airbnb gets a reality check as consumers shift away from higher-cost rentals that thrived in the pandemic. CEO Brian Chesky joins us to talk about his outlook on travel and address those high cleaning fees. And as tensions between the U.S. and China persist, how do businesses change their strategy? Plus, where is Jack Ma, a former Alibaba exec? will join us. But first, a little bit more about Twitter and advertising Elon Musk taking over Twitter at one of the most precarious moments for big tech companies that have built massive businesses based on ad revenue. Platforms we've taken for granted, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, have been free to users thanks to those ads. But that is beginning to change and could continue to change Fast. For more, I want to bring in Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner. Kurt, before we go any farther, what's actually happening with uh, Twitter's ad products right now? We've, there's been talk about a potential advertiser boycott. Elon Musk yeah. has put uh, some ideas out there about a subscription. Where do we stand right now? Yeah, I mean, right now, everything is sort of where it was, you know, last week. But you just mentioned there's some looming things that could be incredibly uh, impactful. The first is this potential boycott, right? Like this idea that advertisers are going to say, hey, we're not going to spend money on this platform unless you do certain things around speech or, or policing of speech. And we saw that with Facebook a few years ago, Emily, you probably remember. And it was a big deal, but Facebook was able to weather that storm um, for a couple reasons. And one of them was that, you know, they had Sheryl Sandberg out there talking to advertisers and, and other senior leaders. Now, all the senior leaders at Twitter who would be having those conversations are gone. 
And so that's why I feel like an advertising boycott at Twitter could be kind of dicey um, if indeed that is the route that some people go, which, you know, as we've seen, they'd be willing to do it before. I wouldn't be surprised if that something like that happens again. Meantime, you know, Twitter is grappling with the fact that advertisers are potentially going elsewhere in general and also facing a massive economic slowdown. How are advertisers thinking about whether to spend their dollars on social media or look to things like streaming? I mean, this sounds so obvious, but if you're an advertiser, especially right now when budgets are a little bit tighter, when there's this massive inflation issue that's going on, you're only going to spend money where you can see a return on that investment, right? So that historically has been places like Google and Facebook, uh, places with really strong direct response businesses, right? So I put a dollar in and I know with some you know consistency, I'm going to get a dollar fifty in sales out. Now, Twitter has always been different than that. They've always specialized in what's called brand advertising, right? It's the kind of stuff you see around the Super Bowl or on a billboard or whatever. That is not necessarily something that is easy to measure for ROI. It's not the kind of thing that I think when, uh, you know, uh, times are tough and, and money is tight that you want to go spend a bunch of money on that. So I do think regardless of what's going on with Elon, I just think spending money on Twitter right now is probably a tough, you know, sell just given the environment that we're in economically. Uh, we heard a little bit from Kathy Wood, who seems excited about Elon Musk's plans per usual. Let's take a quick listen to what she had to say on Bloomberg earlier today. This subscription advertising model is a very smart move if he goes in that direction. The verification, that little check, is very important to people and could help clean up uh, the platform considerably. You know, it's not surprising that someone like Kathy Wood would be excited about Elon Musk's plans. But, you know, what do you make of, of yeah. her support and whether, you know, there will be a wave of you know, advertisers and, and, and people out there who like what Elon is doing? Yeah, I'm smiling not because, uh, you know, I... I necessarily disagree that the, the blue check has value. Uh, I'm just not sure that this idea that it's going to clean up the service of bots really makes a whole lot of sense. We've seen Elon talk about this as well, right? That, well, once I start charging for the blue check, you know, bots won't pay for the blue check and then we'll know who's real and who's not. Well, that implies, Emily, that regular people are going to pay for a blue check mark too. And $8 a month uh, is not, you know, uh, necessarily something that people are, are willing to fork over for, you know, proving to Elon Musk that they are a human being. And so I'm curious to see how this works. To me, it feels relatively rushed. Um, maybe there's more nuance to it that we just haven't learned yet, right? Because a lot of this he's just conveying via his own tweets. So perhaps there's a much broader plan that we're just not seeing. But at least on the surface, I, I feel like this idea of, you know, we're suddenly going to uh, know who the humans are and who the bots are because the humans are the ones who are going to pay. It just doesn't feel realistic when you have, you know, hundreds of millions of people on a service. Not that many people are going to want to pay for this. All right. Uh, so much more. TBD. Uh, Bloomberg's Kurt yeah. Wagner, thank you, of course, for all of your reporting on Twitter. We'll continue to follow uh, your stuff. Let's get back to earnings now with Airbnb reporting big revenue and net income numbers, but shares falling after the company gave a disappointing outlook for bookings in the fourth quarter, closing down more than 13%. I want to bring in CEO Brian Chesky to address it all now. Brian, thank you as always for joining us. So 
1.2 billion in net income, 2.9 billion in revenue. These are big numbers, um, but investors still pretty disappointed. What's your response to this big stock plunge? I believe it's the biggest stock market drop for Airbnb since going public. Well, you know, I've tried to make sure that we focus on um, what we can deliver. And you're right, Emily, we delivered a record quarter, a billion and a half of EBITDA, uh, nearly a billion dollars in free cash flow, $3.3 billion in the trailing 12 months. I think that, you know, people in the world, this is a very uncertain time and everyone's really looking for indications of what the future holds. Um, we've tried to make very clear on, on the call that we're actually feeling very confident about Q4. So people are traveling. That's why results were really good in Q3. And we're actually feeling really confident. And I want to make sure people know that. So let's hold on in on this moderating of booking growth that you see. If we are heading into a long-term recession, who's to say that, that consumers aren't going to cut back on travel or aren't going to choose to stay in cheaper, closer places rather than splurge on that trip abroad? And that's going to add up for Airbnb. Well, this is a great point, Emily. One of the things I just say, though, is that one of the things we learned in the pandemic is that we have a very adaptable business model. For example, remember, recall in 2020, Airbnb was the first company to rebound in all of travel. That's partly why we had such a successful IPO. And the reason why is we are a more affordable option. We have never nearly every type of space and nearly every community. So if people cut back cross-border travel, they might start working more from Airbnb. So we found a very resilient model. And that's something I'm feeling really confident about. Chris Bryant, our Bloomberg opinion columnist, had an interesting take. He suggested if Airbnb has a problem, it's that you're making too much money. How do you respond to that? Uh, no one would ever have told us that two and a half years ago. We were losing $250 million a year in EBITDA. And of course, now we delivered a billion and a half dollars in EBITDA in the quarter. You know, we are increasingly investing more in the customer experience every year. The reason we're getting more profitable is we're more efficient. We're incredibly disciplined. We only have 6,000 employees. We spend a lot less on marketing than any other travel company of our size in the online space. Um, but, you know, with AirCover, we're investing a lot more in the customer experience this year. So we're going to continue to be more efficient, but we're going to continue to deliver more and more for customers. And I also understand that people really care about value. They want to make sure that Airbnb is still a brand you can come to get a great value. We're known for affordable travel. And I know that people are really concerned about whether or not our, our um, Airbnbs will continue to be affordable, and they will be. We're going to continue to focus on making sure our prices are competitive. And so that's what we're focused on. So let's talk about the transparency around pricing that you hinted at. I think we've all had that feeling of looking at a rental on Airbnb, then we click all the way through and, and the price changes given all the fees, the cleaning fee, et cetera. What can we expect that transparency to look like? Well, yeah, Emily, I think there's two things going on. The first is people, sh we, we want people to understand our pricing, not be surprised. The second is we want to make sure that when they do see the final price, they feel really good about the final price, and it's still a great value. So we are working on updating some of the designs for our platform to make everything even more intuitive, and we're going to have some updates very, very soon, so stay tuned. Let's talk a little bit about average daily rates. There's an expectation those are going to come under pressure in the next quarter, given the strong dollar, if the bookings mix shifts to potentially cheaper rentals. Can you give us some insight on consumer preferences right now? What do consumers want that you're seeing through the holiday season and into 2023? 
we're not seeing a major change. I mean, what I would say is the reason that price per night on Airbnb has gone up in the last couple of years is before the pandemic, most people were using Airbnb to cross the border and stay in a city and stay in a one-bedroom, two-bedroom place. Now, a lot of people are booking three, four, five-bedroom homes. And they're doing it because they're going with their friends, their families, their coworkers, or they're living in the house. And so now the average jail rate is higher because the homes are bigger. What we think is when Asia recovers, that could moderate price per night a little bit. But that's a good thing because that will actually lead to a lot more volume because you get an entire continent to be traveling a lot more. And I do think you're going to see that grow. So we actually are expecting a pretty stable average daily rate. We're not seeing major shifts in the way people use Airbnb just yet. Long-term stay is still hugely popular, about 20% of nights booked. Give us some insight on that trend, because I wonder, is it plateauing at all? Is it slowing down? I mean, is the growth that you saw there over? No, no. I mean, honestly, long-term stays is still the fastest growing segment by length of stay on Airbnb. Now, because the short-term stays have recovered, it's now been stable at 20%. I do expect in the coming years ahead, though, long-term stays will probably increasingly grow as a percentage of our business. And the reason why is because increasingly, I think more people are going to be flexible Fewer people have leases. I'm not saying no one will. I'm just saying enough for this market to continue to grow. So this is going to be a huge new growth growth opportunity for us in the coming years to come. It's so fascinating just how much how people use Airbnb has changed just in the last couple of years. Do you have any concern that Airbnb is over-reliant potentially on long-term stays? No, because, um, you know, we just got to make sure that each segment is growing and the long term stays aren't really coming at the cost of short term stays. So as long as short term stays continue to grow, think of it as another layer. It's kind of like Amazon sells books and now they sell electronics. Now they sell another category. We don't think these categories will necessarily cannibalize. These are really different use cases. And a lot of people are coming to Airbnb just to list monthly stays. So this, I think, can open up a lot. I actually think monthly stays can make short term stays more popular. Because some people might book an Airbnb for a long-term stay and say, hey, that wasn't so bad staying in someone else's home. Maybe I'll do it for a short-term stay. So it may actually have a way of bringing more customers into Airbnb. That's at least what, we, what our theory is. Interesting. You do have some analysts out there who seem to be thinking Airbnb is priced too high compared to some of your travel peers, especially if the bookings mix is changing. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, our guests still tell us that Airbnb is the best value. That being said, we do want to make sure that as the economy slows down, our value is even better. And we do know that hotels are starting to lower prices. And we want to make sure that our pricing is as dynamic. So one of the things we're doing is we're investing a lot more in pricing tools for hosts so that they can have more dynamic pricing. And if hotels lower rates and they want to lower rates and be more competitive, they can do that. So I still think we're offering a great value, but there is no question that there's a lot more we can be doing on value. And that's something we're going to be really focused on over the next six months in time for the next travel season. So longer term, I, you know, obviously you've launched categories, which I know you're really excited about. Supply is going to be key. How do you see growth in supply over the next two years compared to the growth you saw in supply over the last two years? And how do you convince all of these new would-be hosts to choose Airbnb first and only potentially? Yeah. 
I think it's a great question. Um, well, let me say this. Number one, I expect a lot more new supply over the next two years than the last two years. Um, the last two years have actually been pretty hard because of the pandemic. Not everyone wanted other people in their homes. I think in the next two years, they're going to be a lot more interested for two reasons. Number one, uh, the further the pandemic is behind us, the less reticent they are. But more importantly, Emily, as you recall, we started during 2008, Airbnb, during the Great Recession. And during the Great Recession, a lot of people needed to make extra money, and they turned to Airbnb to host for the first time. I think that's going to happen again. And the final thing I'll say, I'm going to give a plug. On November 16th <laughs> at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, we're going to unveil a whole new, super easy way to list your home on Airbnb. And I think that is going to be a big driver of a lot more hosts. So we have some really cool new products they are going to be launching in fewer than two weeks, and I think that's going to add an acceleration. All right, November 16th, we will be watching. Last question, Airbnb was started in the middle of the financial crisis. You obviously survived and thrived ultimately in the pandemic. What's your strategy on costs through this downturn? Are you considering M&A given all that cash and potentially opportunistic or advantageous valuations out there? You know, how are you mapping this out given we could be in this for a couple of years? That's a great question, too. Um, let me tell you the, a really important lesson I learned during the pandemic. You know, in uh, between uh, February and in April of 2020, we were one of the first companies hit by the pandemic. We lost 80% of our business in eight weeks. And a thousand of us got in a foxhole. And we rebuilt the company from the ground up. And the company we rebuilt was a much smaller, much leaner, much more disciplined company. The reason we did $3 billion in free cash in the last 12 months is because of that discipline. And what I told the team is no matter how good the economy is, no matter how bad the economy is, we are going to try to not ever run the company differently because of the economy. You can only do that if you stay disciplined. Right? You don't ever want to have to get more disciplined. So I said, we should be prepared for a storm whenever it comes. We're not going to change the way we run the company. And because of that, beginning this year, we were only, for example, forecasting hiring 7% more employees this year. When other tech companies were going to hire 20, 30, 40%, now they have to pull back. We're not pulling back. In fact, we're not pulling on the brakes. We're going to step on the gas. But stepping on the gas doesn't mean we have to spend a lot more money. It's just a lot more velocity via speed, innovation, and taking more market share. All right. Brian Chesky, we'll keep that in mind. CEO of Airbnb, thanks for making the time today, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. We're going to be right back with more of Bloomberg Technology after this quick break. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street. 
the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. China is making moves that will severely curtail shipments in and out of the world's largest iPhone factory. Beijing is imposing a seven-day lockdown on the area in Zhengzhou. This after the number of COVID cases in the city almost quadrupled from Monday to Tuesday. And it's a profit and sales miss for Paramount Global, the parent company of CBS, Nickelodeon, and MTV Networks reporting earnings. And the big problem, continuing weakness in advertising. Still, there's been a turnaround in Paramount's film studio with revenue up 48% in the third quarter and Top Gun Maverick is the highest grossing film so far this year. Meantime, Amazon also feeling the heat on its ad business and it's now taking more drastic measures to align expenses with a slowdown in sales. Sources telling Bloomberg that the world's largest e-commerce company is freezing staff levels in its profitable ads business. Amazon will continue to fill vacancies in this unit, but won't create any new jobs. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. The banking sector says people and businesses are paying more and more in the wake of ransomware attacks. Banks reported $1.2 billion in ransomware payments last year alone, nearly five times as much as in 2019. And that is just a taste of what Jeff Stone will explore with Bloomberg's weekly Cyber Bulletin newsletter, including exclusive coverage inside the world of hackers and cyber espionage and how businesses are playing defense. Jeff, tell us more about Cyber Bulletin and what your goals are here. The goal here is to help uh, people understand, Emily, that cybersecurity is a lot more than ones and zeros in the latest big data breach. There's all kinds of characters involved in this world now. Cryptocurrency fraud is part of this. Disinformation is part of this. All kinds of influence operations and everyone trying to monetize data. So that's what we're trying to explore here and really help people understand how they can protect themselves more urgently. Now, cyber threats have been on the rise for a while. Why now are you launching this? We're busier than ever, mostly. We figured we'd take on one more project. But basically, since since the invasion of Ukraine really has highlighted uh, this big explosion of ransomware, as you, as you just alluded to, um, it is urgent for people to get a better sense of really what these threats look like and how to respond in cyberspace. Again, I think people are used to this world of email scams and different kinds of fraud through your apps that you're still trying to get a handle on. But we're really going to dig in and help people um, straighten out how to protect themselves uh, at a more urgent time than ever. All right, Bloomberg's Jeff Stone. You can sign up for that weekly Bloomberg Cyber Bulletin newsletter at Bloomberg.com. Thanks, Jeff. We'll stay tuned. Well, for more on the state of cybersecurity, I want to bring in Christopher Alberg, the CEO of the cybersecurity firm Recorded Future, which is actively tracking the cybersecurity 
threat level in Ukraine. Uh, Chris, give us the latest there. You've been involved yeah, for, for several months now. Tell us what you're most worried about at this time. You know, it's, it's really interesting. We started basically, we had worked a little bit with one particular part of the Ukrainian government, their national cert. On the morning of the 24th of February, we sort of stood up publicly. You can check out our nice tweet on that and said, look, we would get behind these guys and, and help them in every every and any way we can. And so now our, our intelligence platform is in the hands of seven agencies over there. And look, it, it's been interesting. Uh, at, in the lead up of the war, there was uh, a whole bunch of Russian activity at the very sort of uh, crossover into the war. They killed a bunch of communications infrastructure. The Russians has taken apart a bunch of systems. They have certainly been running a whole bunch of destructive malware campaigns uh, against, uh, call it Ukrainian power infrastructure and the like, ongoingly. What's actually been very impressive is how the Ukrainians together with foreign firms and foreign intelligence agencies and help people helping them have been able to withstand this. That's actually the most impressive. But the dear Russians are ongoingly going at it. And we may not hear too much about it because obviously it's as much as when bullets and the like fly in the air, a lot of other things may go to the back. But um, it's it's full, full speed ahead there for sure. You've been donating software, geopolitical intelligence to Ukrainian agencies. How long are you prepared to do this for? No, no ending. Uh, no ending to that. We we came out and said we would go in all in and and try to help them in every way we could. Uh, we announced a big hiring initiative. We're hiring another hundred people in in Ukraine. We're sort of to to your point. We've given them software and access to our intelligence cloud in in seven different agencies, and they're using it to to go at uh, cyber attacks, disinformation, and helping on the battlefield. We think it's been quite impactful. You know, obviously we can only do our little part, uh, but we will do it as long as it can, as we as we can, and, and help them in every way they can. They they need to to be able to help them basically crush the Russians because that's I think what this is all about. If I'm slightly blunt here, we've got some big midterm elections coming up in the United States. How would you rate the cyber threat level more broadly, and and what are you most concerned about when it comes to these upcoming elections? So I would say that it's interesting that the sort of the broad sort of set of disinformation activity around that is is ongoing and it's sort of at the same level as we saw in 2020. I think there's been a lot of good work done by the U.S. government. There's a lot of other sort of the firms, whether it's the social media firms and, and people sort of on top of that in terms of sort of fighting back on some of this. Uh, the Russians are still there by no no question. IRA, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, they're still trying to go at it, targeting maybe a little bit sort of very targeted audiences that they can come at. They obviously are quite busy on the home front. Uh, the Iranians have also been pretty busy on the home front, so maybe not, not as much. We, we, we could all have read over the last couple of days about some interesting things where the Chinese are going at it. So there are threats there, but I think we're, we'll be in good shape. The election is going to be safe. It's going to be a good election. And and uh, even though these guys are trying, I think we're doing better. So what's keeping you up at night right now that we're not talking about enough? So I think it's you, you because obviously, you know, you heard it in Jeff's sort of point here just now, there's plenty of cyber activity and, and it's not great. But I think we haven't even really started yet. I like to say that over the last 25 years, the world have sort of slowly migrated onto the Internet. Uh, next 25 years, the Internet is sort of where it starts and the world 
ends up being a reflection of the internet, whether it's world power or business or currency or money or identity, it all is going to emerge out of the internet. And in that world, we better have our act together. We think that is an incredible opportunity to build an intelligence company. We want to be the Bloomberg of cyber if you want. But in that, but the world better have its act together because the this internet-centric world is, is going to be quite wild. And, and so we better all be all be ready for a ride. I wonder how you think about, you know, Elon Musk taking over at Twitter, potentially having a more open-minded approach to, to content moderation. Does the world have its act together? Uh, so, so dangerous subject to get into. I think he'll do good with it. I, I'm, I'm sort of a very positive person, even though I maybe sound a little bit scared there before. I think he will have new smart ways to go at content moderation. Uh, you know, so so I'm an optimist about that. But, you know, and if he screws it up, the, the dangerous part or not dangerous, dangerous part for him is that these are pretty fleeting sort of audiences. They'll go anywhere else. And, and you know, actually, maybe one danger here is that if he doesn't handle this one well, we might see too much of this audience going over in the hands of TikTok. And to be honest, I'd much rather have Elon Musk run a great platform or even maybe not such a great platform here in the United States than having our sort of upcoming generations living their social life on TikTok. I'd take, uh, take, take Twitter over that any day. And why is that? Because I think if our dear Chinese friends are controlling the information flow on TikTok, whether that's sort of controlling the news flow, being able to intercept communications on that, in that sort of, you know, much too, too much control in the hands of, uh, of the Chinese government, to be frank, or Chinese intelligence agencies, not a good thing. All right. Well, appreciate you navigating, uh, wading into some tricky territory with us. Christopher Alberg, CEO of Recorded Future, thank you for sharing your thoughts here. We'll have to have you back soon. Coming up, the line between traditional finance and decentralized finance getting blurred. We're going to talk a little bit more about how next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, 
OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I think some people have avoided this asset class. It's very risky. It is not appropriate for everyone. In fact, when you buy cryptocurrency on SoFi, we say this is a risky asset. It's unproven and you could lose all of your money. So um, with prices down at this level, we are seeing people uh, take an opportunity to um, you know, experiment with this type of investment and get to know the asset better. So Fai's Anthony Noto there earlier on Bloomberg as the worlds of traditional finance and DeFi continue to collide. Bloomberg's Shanali Basik here to explain more what is happening. Shanali, take it away. Emily, I think it's really important to listen to what Anthony Noto over at SoFi had to say about crypto because they're a traditional financial technology firm that successfully acquired a bank and that has helped it really rein in a lot of depositor money from clients which then can potentially be used to do things like buy a little crypto in a downturn or invest elsewhere. The real, reality is options here to borrow, to buy assets and to, to deposit your money for safekeeping at a at, you know, at SoFi, a higher interest rate than many other large banks, that is the choice that you're faced with at the end of the day. So that rolls us forward to soon after that interview we did with the SoFi CEO to comments that were made by the CEO of Binance. We know that Binance had considered making up as much of a billion dollars or more worth of acquisitions, and you have CZ now talking about the idea of buying a bank. There are people who hold certain types of local licenses, traditional banking, payment service providers, even banks, and we're looking at those things things, he says. And we want to be the bridge between crypto and the traditional financial world, he says. So what does that really look like at the end of the day? When you think about, you know, Binance getting more into traditional finance, can they do it successfully? Similar to how we've seen fintechs like SoFi do it. Uh, they did it by buying a bank for less than a billion dollars and getting that banking license. I want to show you here what it looks like in terms of multiples, though. Because if you look at what it means to be a bank or buy a bank, even coin base with that huge drawdown you've seen in the stock this year, you're still seeing them trade at a higher price to earnings than you are seeing the biggest banks in the United States, both regional and large investment banks trade at. That is between 9 and 11 times earnings, and you're seeing Coinbase trade at a higher multiple. And when you look back again at what CZ had said, is that when traditional crypto firms do pair with uh, finance firms, you do see uh, the stock tend to jump of those finance firms. And he says by by partnering with those companies, maybe taking a stake or buying outright, what you can get potentially is a higher multiple, both for Binance and that financial firm. So it will be interesting to see what kind of deals come out of Binance and others as we move along, not just through partnership like we've seen for the last year or so, but by pure money put into traditional financial firms, by firms that have gotten so large in the crypto space like Binance. All right, uh, Shanali, so much more to come there. I know, Shanali Basik, thank you. Let's take a look now at the behind the scenes of one of the world's most influential tech companies in China and the world, and that is Alibaba. It's the topic of a new book from a former Alibaba executive called The Tao of Alibaba, Inside the Chinese Digital Giant That is Changing the World. So 
how did Alibaba take on the world and what's it got coming next? Let's bring in author Brian Wong for more, a former top Alibaba executive. So Brian, you were the first American that worked at Alibaba, the 52nd employee and a special assistant to Jack Ma. So you've seen some things, uh, we should say. What do you think is Alibaba and Jack Ma's secret sauce? Well, you know, uh, Emily, I, I wrote this book because I really wanted to share what my um, understanding and perception was from the nearly 20 years I was with the company about, you know, the essence of sort of Jack Ma and Alibaba. And I think, you know, to put it in very um, basic terms is uh, Jack really um, was able to build a company around a, a very deep purpose um, of solving the world's problems. He, uh, he created a culture that was very um, optimistic and positive, and he was able to align an organization to all focus on that, that uh, mission, but at the same time give them the flexibility to adapt to the constantly changing world and the industry that it, it's operating in in order to, for it to become successful. So I've seen the company recreate itself over and over over these last 20 years, and I think really at the essence of it was what I call the Dow, but it's really this kind of um, really strong uh, mission-driven and purpose-driven organization and culture that Jack helped to uh, create. So the question is, can Alibaba reinvent itself again? When the company tried to globalize a few years back, it didn't quite work. Should Alibaba revive those ambitions now, and, and will it work when the, there's others pushing for de-globalization? Well, you know, one of the, the amazing things about the company uh, throughout its history is how resilient it's been. You know, when it was very small, it faced some existential crises. Um, before COVID, there was something called SARS, and it was a very small company. And the company actually mobilized itself without even the direction of the leaders. But the staff came together and figured out ways to keep the company operating uh, in its early years, but also to launch what we now know as one of the major retail businesses called Taobao during a lockdown period when you didn't have the conveniences that we have today in terms of mobile uh, connectivity and, and, and devices. So I believe that the company, with its DNA and the culture that's been really um, established and uh, uh, you know, institutionalized with Alibaba, it does have great potential to uh, uh, continue to grow, but also, as you just asked, globalize. Yes, I think that um, the world uh, now really needs some you know, positive forces um, that utilize the, you know, things like technology to actually improve society and, frankly, to solve a lot of the problems that we're facing, um, not, not just in the developed world, but in the emerging markets. That said, China's COVID zero policies have had a, a myriad of potentially negative impacts when you're talking about the supply chain and you know basic consumer demand and execution. Yeah. Some yeah. people say Alibaba's glory days are over. What do you think? Sure. Well, look, I think the, the challenges of zero COVID and the supply chain are a, more of a, a larger national issue that needs to be resolved. And I think the, the country is trying to work through that. You know, we may agree or disagree with how they're handling it, but really this is something that needs to take place on a national level. And then eventually, you know, the companies can get back on their feet and do the things they need to do. I, I do think, though, this experience has really built up um, really strong capacity in terms of dealing with uncertainty. And if you look at how companies like Ali Baba, you know, we're able to adapt to uh, the situation over the years. I think they're going to come out stronger once this is all done. The question is, though, how does big tech survive in President Xi's China? When Beijing cracked yeah. down on the Ant IPO, it basically put a scarlet letter on Alibaba and Jack Ma 
himself. What's the way out? Well, look, I think the anti-IPO situation was one of a, of a, of a string of events that happened. And probably, uh, you know, it was so high profile because it was at the start of this kind of change in policy. But also, yes, it was a very major decision and quite sudden. But I do think that, you know, what this really indicates is a shift in terms of government policy, one that was previously a kind of a late touch sort of governance model where it allowed for room for innovation to one where it's more heavily regulated. But this is a global global issue. If you think about what we're dealing with now in the upcoming Supreme Court decisions in terms of antitrust and privacy and these issues, this is America. In, in Europe, we're dealing with this and also China. And this is where big tech has become, you know, big and influential um, and governments are trying to figure out how to how to manage this. So I do think that each respective country and its its governments will figure out the solution or the policy for that. But I do think if you're, if you're asking about opportunities down the road, um, there are definitely new opportunities opportunities in the market, um, you know, in higher quality sort of, um, you know, industries or, 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 or you know, areas. Um China is essentially trying to upgrade its industrial capacity. And how companies can play in those spaces is really going to be the secret to their uh, future growth and success if they can really tap into that. Jack Ma still hasn't been seen publicly in some time. When is the last time you spoke with him? Where do you think he is and how is he doing? Well, you know, I've been in touch with Jack, um, you know, throughout the last two years and in, 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 um, in communication. And, you know, he's been he's been free to move around. He's been laying low, obviously. Um, you know, he's traveled abroad. Um, you know, uh, people have mentioned they've seen him in Europe and other places in Asia. But I think he's really... Um, Emily, he's gearing up for his next act, which is really around philanthropy, education, you know, helping uh, those areas uh, that really need assistance. Um, and it's a passion of his is to really um, help those who are kind of the more marginalized uh, parts of society to really get on their feet, rural communities, um, but also learning. You know, I think he was doing a lot of learning tours uh, in, in his last two years. Um, so so I, I think he's OK, but I, I think that a lot of people have been wondering and, and uh, hopefully at some point, you know, he will um, have his next sort of, uh, you know, uh, big thing to come out in terms of what he wants to do in philanthropy and, and people will know. Brian Wong, former Alibaba executive, author of The Tao of Alibaba, inside the Chinese digital giant that's changing the world. Uh, thanks so much, Brian, for joining us. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Thursday, we've got the CEO of Aurora, Chris Ermson, talking about big changes and challenges ahead for self-driving technology. I'm Emily Shang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.